So good to be worshiping in the house of the Lord with my good friend Jesse and his wife Nancy. I met them first when I was in France with Alliance France, um, I think last year. And I have been helping Alliance Paris and Alliance France with uh, strategic planning. And during that time, um, on one of the sessions, Jesse and his wife came and picked me up and took me out to this wonderful area of France where they have the best chateaus uh, in the world. And it was a marvelous experience, but what I really love about Pastor Jesse and Nancy is just the shepherding, loving, caring, nurturing heart that they have. And I just felt like we were on this um, family road trip together. <laughs> uh, so I really appreciate having them in my life and having the opportunity to come and share with you the word of the Lord this morning. Uh, when I think about um, what is the best, how many know what an ROI is? You know what an ROI is? It's an acronym, and we have a lot of acronyms today. Um, I learned some acronyms from my kids. I did not know until a few years ago what LOL was. You know what an LOL is, right? <laughs> Laughing out loud. Uh, and then I had a chance also because to work with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Orlando here for a number of years as the International Philanthropy Director, uh, learning about the importance of language. And languages, you know, they kind of ebb and flow and it changes. And there's still some people who love the King James Version Bible, you know, but uh, as it changes and flows, words become archaic and they become more meaningful, and new words always come into play. And I love this one word, the ROI. And so this morning I want to talk about what is the best return on investment that you can make. So let's take a look at your scripture verse this morning. Um, if we can go to that. Do I have the thing clicker? All right, maybe Jesse, you can help me. <laughs> There's too many things to do. All right, in this morning's verse, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, it's like a few slides after, it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is as well. So if you go back a, a, a slide, I want to give us a kind of an, a definition of what is an investment. An investment this morning, according to the Wikipedia Encyclopedia, knowing that we're in this postmodern digital age, and it says this, is to invest or allocate money in the expectation of some benefit in the future. How many work in finance or are good at finance or take care of their household finances? If you're single, you take care of your own, right? But we all, you know, manage our finances. And investment in is to allocate money in the expectation of some benefit for the future. And in finance, the benefit from an investment is called a return on the investment. A return may consist of a gain or a loss. Now, both my brother and sisters work in finance. And I don't really work in finance. In fact, that wasn't the subject that I was really good at. So I kind of put my wife in charge of our finances, and she's doing wonderful. Uh, and so in, in families, we have different people who have different skill sets in finance. But we want to talk about 
a spiritual reward and the investment and the finance that we can put to heaven. Uh, and the three points that are outlined this morning is one, um, in terms of your best uh, return on investment, one is that there is loss and gain. Two, that there is a gain that's guaranteed, and we obviously know what that refers to, which is in God's word. And three, our best return on investment and what that is. So if you look at Matthew chapter 6, 1921, the first thing you'll say is says, the Bible says, it starts off with, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You know, um, I grew up in rural Korea. My father was the... Um, chief editor of the United Nations newspaper in Korea, just after the Korean War. He was a captain. And he sat in the same office as President Park Chung-hee, who was at that time a lieutenant colonel. Now, I was born in 1961. It makes me 58. I look young, right? Yeah. Korean ginseng. Try that. No. But uh, during that time... It, after the Korean War, which was a forgotten war, and if anybody ever served in the Korean War, I just want to say thank you, because I wouldn't be here today without the Americans being involved in Korea and serving there. But during that time, um, my father had an opportunity. Uh, president Park Chung-hee, whose daughter was the very first female president and who got ousted just before this current president, uh, her dad was a lieutenant colonel, and my dad was a captain. And one day, he had the whole office. He was in charge of this whole office. And he said to my dad, in 30 days, I'm going to take over the government. And historically, that's true, because he became the president. It was a coup. Uh, and he said to my dad, I want you to be the next, next secretary of the Korean government. Now, that's quite something, because... 20 years later, after we had immigrated in 1969, when I was eight years old, I went back to Korea and met my, some of my father's friends. And they are people high up in politics and in government and in stations of life. And I was like thinking, I could have had a very different life if my dad said yes. But my dad had made a vow while he was in the army. You see, because when he was in the army, he was trying to become a captain, and in those days, to be a captain, and my dad was a country boy, uh, to be a captain, you had to speak English very well, and the city boys always had one step up on the country boys. So my dad looked around, coming from a nominal Buddhist family, and uh, he, he said, who would teach me? And he found a medic stationed in Korea from Canada, and he said, I'll teach you, and he taught him from a little red book, not the book of Mao, but the book of John. And as my dad began to learn and understand and comprehend what John said, he said, oh, I think um, I've got a test coming up to be a captain. God, if you're real, would you uh, just help me to pass this test? And if you do, I'll serve you. So he kind of made this Gideon kind of fleece. He, didn't, he never heard about Gideon, didn't know what it was, never read the books of Old Testament, but he made this kind of promise to the Lord. And when he passed the test, then uh, he became captain, and he was the chief editor of the uh, UN newspaper. And the UN in Korea is very popular. It's, it's very prestigious to be in the UN. And so when he was asked to be um, the secretary of the Korean government and turned it down, my dad had to go somewhere very quiet. You could say it was like somewhere like Nazareth, somewhere that's unknown. So he had to go to the country areas. So it would be like... 
akin to going to some country area in Florida rather than the big cities of Orlando or Tampa or something like that. And my dad became a rural church pastor. So he stayed three or four years in one church, and he moved on and on, and, and he established churches. And so I grew up in the 60s in Korea in very similar circumstances and situations, just like the kids that are in the developing world that are very poor. I remember times when we had very little food. Uh, I would get an egg or a quarter piece of orange or apple every once, every couple, two weeks or so. And we never got a big piece of meat. Uh, it was always like chicken was only for special occasions, Christmas, birthdays. And the chicken would be like kind of upside down. It wasn't Tyson chicken. It was a lie, right? And as a little boy, I'd follow my mom, mother into the market, and I could see this chicken hanging upside down with the wings flapping upside down. You know, it was very real. And I grew up in those kinds of circumstances where I saw my mom and dad invest in God's kingdom. And sometimes life was really, really difficult. And so when we immigrated to Canada, and the very medic that taught my dad and led him to Christ, he sponsored us, and we immigrated to Canada when I was eight years old, 1969, to the northwest part of Vancouver Island called the Nuka Indian Reservation in a town called Esperanza. And, you know, Esperanza means hope. So we had a new hope. My mother wanted to have a new life for the kids so that we would do better. And so we came, and life was really difficult. It was like sacrifice, struggle to survive, and then to succeed. But in some ways, it was much better for us uh, as kids, but for mom and dad, it was always this longing to go back home. But they wanted to invest in us, and they wanted to see a good return on it. Now, all of these things are wonderful, but they pass away. And I remember as a kid, when I was 16 years old, I got my first job at McDonald's. How many ever worked at McDonald's? All right. In 1976, I was 16 years old, $2.60 an hour. It's a lot of money back then, right? It was my first real job. I remember how nervous and alert I was because I wanted to prove that if I could build on that at McDonald's, right, that I could do something with my life. And so I worked really hard. I worked there for four years. Most restaurant people only last three months. I worked there for four years, had multiple jobs, went to school while I was working. I'm not a great person, but it's just an immigrant experience. And during that time, I remember saving up enough money to buy a car and a car stereo when I was 16 years old. And I saved for a year and a half. And I got this beautiful little Pioneer car stereo. I love music, right? And so I put it in the dash because Vancouver is notorious for thieves. And we went out to a movie one night, and I had bought this beautiful new Gap jacket for $40. That was a lot of money. But I left it in the front seat. When I came back from the movie, the window was smashed. The glove compartment where it was was opened, and the stereo had been ripped out, and the jacket was gone. And as a young man who's 16, 17 years old, who had saved and scrimped the $2.60 an hour, it was like somebody punched me in the gut, you know. But, you know, there's, there's other parts of my life where I had saved money for a sweater, for example. Because I loved clothes when I was younger, you know, in fashion, because I didn't have it. 
And so I, put, I would put it up in the, in the, in the um, closet attic, and I would just like keep it for two or three years, and before you know it, it was going out of style. The other thing was that one day I took this brand new sweater out, and there was a big hole in it because a moth had gotten in there. And what that told me was that no matter what we try to invest our life in here, the Bible says that it, it, the moths eat it, rust decays cars, right? Especially if you're in Canada. Um, I don't know about Florida, right? And things get destroyed. But a lot of times we place our faith or our value or without knowing it, we um, put a lot of value on the things that we see rather than the things like we live by faith and not by sight, right? But oftentimes we live by sight rather than faith when we're not thinking and just going along life's highway. That's how we live. And so the Bible deals with this, and Jesus says here, um, do not store up your, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But the Bible says, the contrast in verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart is. You know, the Bible says, um, John MacArthur, who is a Bible scholar, says that more than 78% of the parables of Jesus have to deal with finances and your heart. Why? Because they're tied together. And the Bible clearly indicates, and Jesus said, store up or lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What does he mean by that? Well, let's take a look at the next verse. And the next verse is about gains that are guaranteed on earth. I had a friend who, um, back in the last big real estate fall, he had taken about $300,000 that he had saved over 12 years, and he had put it all into the stock market and into, you know, speculation. He lost everything. And he said, Jeff, I am devastated because I've lost everything. And the Bible is very clear about the fact that we ought to put our stocks or our investments in heaven. This is what the Bible says in, the last, in the, Luke chapter 14, 12 to 14. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbor. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So here's a couple points that I want to just highlight in this passage. Jesus is making, you know, kind of one of these stories where he gets your attention, right? Uh, and what he says is that if, you know, this is how we build relationships. Like if I'm nice to Jesse, he's nice to me. You know, my wife and I were talking about how we build a good relationship, right? But if we end up doing too much for somebody, then it ends up like, is this person exploiting me? Are they taking advantage of me? You know, that kind of a thing. And when I was younger and I was a pastor in a Korean church in Houston, I was a senior high pastor, and there was a junior high pastor named John Kim, right? And he was like, Pastor Jeff, let's go out for dinner sometime. And in the Korean culture, because it's hierarchical, whoever's older buys for the younger, right? 
So I was like, okay, yeah, we're Korean, so I'll do that first time. But I didn't want to be Korean all the time, right? Because I'm part Canadian and part America too, right? But this kept happening like three, four times. And after a while, I said to John, I said, John, we're not going out anymore. Because he kept looking at me sideways and said, you got the bill, right, Pastor Jeff? It's like, I don't want to go out with Pastor John anymore because he's taking advantage of me, right? And, and so in, in the human way, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, if you want to have friends, you have to be friendly. You've got to be able to reciprocate. There's a law of quiet, law of reciprocity that we have in our mind. When I was in Indonesia, they said that, that people remember, sometimes they don't have money, but they'll barter things or exchange, and they'll remember and take really good account of what you owe them and what they owe you, right? So we all have this kind of a sense of fairness in our mind. But the Bible is really radical when it comes to helping those who are the most unfortunate or doing ministry in the church or reaching out what Pastor Jesse said, your church is about loving um, and then serving and sending. And when it comes to those things, the Bible's very clear that that when somebody can repay you back for some good deed that you've done, you got your reward. But the kicker is, if they cannot repay you, you're laying investment in the kingdom of heaven. You're paying it forward. And so whenever I do ministry these days, I work in the area of capital campaigns and helping organizations, you know, ministries and missions organizations um, fundraise do board governance and organizational development for growth. What I've discovered is that if an organization doesn't have enough, that I'm laying that in heaven. I always tell the Lord, that's what I'm doing. So I said to my wife one year, several years ago, I said, how much did we give to the Lord? Because I want to make sure that we're doing, we're living out what we're saying. And she said, this year, and, you know, I don't want to say it braggingly, but she said, this year, because she takes care of our finances, but I want to make sure that we're, we're doing well. So this year we gave 26% of our total income to the Lord. I was like, wow, that's really good. Because the average giving in the United States is 1% to 2%. Yeah. And so churches don't even preach or talk about giving very much. It's almost taboo. Pastors have a hard time talking about it. But I think it needs to be something that's said because we don't talk about the verses that talk about how we invest in the future and in the kingdom. So that our eyes are not on us. Our eyes are not on the material, but they're on the spiritual and the eternal reward. I have a friend in Hong Kong. His name is George So. And he went to a university in Calgary. And he said to me, when I first met you, Jeff, I was afraid of you because you're a fundraiser. You know, there's an adage in, in our industry that says fundraisers have no friends because we're always asking people for money. And I said, no, that's not true. And then four or five years later, he said, Jeff, I'm so glad that I met you because I was worried. I had worked really hard, sometimes sacrificed family vacations and long hours. And now I'm successful. But I, you know what I'm worried about? I'm worried that, that my wife and my kids are dependent on material goods and not God. I'm worried that they're getting caught up in the consumerism in Hong Kong. They have all those fancy labels and brands. And he said, I'm worried that ultimately 
that we are not serving God. And so he said, what I found, though, in giving what God has blessed me with as success is that I found significance in giving it away and joy in giving. And he said, I found that the secret to this joy is that I'm laying it as a return on my investment for the future. So the Bible says here in Luke chapter 14, 12 to 14, um, and you will be blessed, in verse 14, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, um, what is the different ROIs that we can invest in? Let's take a look at that and then we'll close. One, I'm going to talk about the L5s, okay? Say this with me, there are L5s, okay? That's an acronym, right? Uh, first one is invest in the least. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, can you invest in the least? So Matthew 25, 40 says, the king will repay, reply, truly, I tell you, wherever you did it, whatever you did it for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. In 1974, my dad had a major stroke in Canada. He lost one-third of his brain function. My, my mother was working two jobs. She was a seamstress at night at a garment factory in Vancouver, and during the day, my mother was a practical nurse, even though she was a registered nurse in Korea because of the language barrier. And while she was lifting a patient, she bro uh, broke her back. And so we were growing up on government assistance, in Canada's welfare system is pretty good. I'd be grateful for that. But sometimes during that time when both my parents were incapacitated, there were times I remember mom crying and singing the hymns and my dad too, and we didn't have enough money for the next two weeks. And somebody from church would come through with a turkey for Thanksgiving. I remember the first television that we got it was an 11-inch black and white television. And if you could just put the antenna upright and, and kind of touch it, then you could get the cartoons from Bellingham on a Saturday morning. You know? And God provided through people that had invested in the least of these. And we were one of the least of these. And so there are people, whether they're global or local, that are the least, and we ought to invest in them. Second one. The second best one is the second L. Invest in the last. Turn to your neighbor on the other side and invest in the last. Matthew 20, 16 says, So the last will be first and the first will be last. Aren't you glad? I'm glad that I, because, you know, when I was in high school, um, I was never the first. I was kind of like, I played basketball because I was tall for a Canadian, right? Like, for an Asian, <laughs> let alone Korean. I was tall, and so I played bad. They put me on a basketball team, and I played, but I was second string, right? I was a bench warmer. Uh, I, ran the, I ran cross country, and because the coach thought, look at him, he's got long legs, there's hope there. But, you know, I came second last, you know? And so the Bible says that we ought to look after those who are the last, Right? Because God's heart is for them. And so we ought to invest in them. Third one, um, invest in the lost. Turn to somebody behind you and says, will you invest in the lost? 
Luke chapter 15, 8 to 10 says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and say, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. We all know this story. In the same way, I tell you the truth, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one lost sinner that repents. Wow. Talk about a wonderful story for evangelism. We're so lost without Christ. All of us were once there. Sometimes we still are. And then there's people that are lost around our communities, in our workplaces, in our jobs, in, 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 in every station of life. When you go to Starbucks, uh, when you're out on the streets, there are people who are lost that need to know Jesus. Would you invest in them? Because that's the eternal reward. Five, invest in the little. Say that with me. Invest in the, the little. Matthew 19, 14 says, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. How much time do I have? Okay. So, I was in, I was in Africa uh, some time ago. Malawi, Africa. How many heard of Malawi? Malawi is the five, top 5% five of the poorest countries on the UN index in Africa. It's a... Um, it's near Kenya. It's on the eastern border. Um, a famous person named Madonna, right, pop star, a- adopted her boy and girl from Malawi. I had a chance to take a medical dental team to Malawi, and we had packed 10 bags full of medical equipment, and only one came. Good thing that these uh, dentists were like, kind of like, you know, dental MacGyvers, because what they had discovered was that, what I had discovered was that they put everything like in, in each bag in case something didn't arrive. And really the, the other nine bags did not come until the last day we were leaving. So we spent two weeks in Malawi in a community called Nakoma. And it was far out in the country. Nothing there but brush and red dirt, clay, dust. You know, the average person that lives in Malawi is 43 years old, and they die. So when you see an African Malawan, and they look like they're 65, 70, they're actually probably 35, 40. Because every day is a struggle to survive for them. Find water, food, those kinds of things. We went to a little community after we were serving them. We had taken, you know, REI headlamps and weightlifting benches that incline. And, you know, I even got to pull teeth, only the front ones. All right, uh, because it's illegal in the states, but you can do it. And let me, I, you know, they let me do it because there's so many patients. We saw about 1,500 patients over a two-week period. Remember this one guy that came in with six cracked and abscessed teeth. In fact, like his breath was like elephant breath, I believe, um, if you could imagine that. And he had like purple, green, and and just um, a blackness of all, all of his gums. So, the, so this is like, I think, on the second day. We pulled all of his teeth. He went home. Next morning at 5.30 in the morning, he's the first one coming over the hill with the sun. And the dentist that we took, the team of dentists, they were going, uh-oh. <laughs> he's probably mad at us because he has no more teeth, right? He came back with the same gauze in his mouth, and he took it out, and he said, thank you. 
This was the first time I'd been able to sleep through the night in 16 years. And when I asked them, how do you brush your teeth? They don't have a way. They might use a twig. They might use some dirt. Or they just might use their fingers. But out of all the 1,500 patients we saw, we only saw one person with a filling. Basically, we only saw one person who had ever had the opportunity to go see a dentist. In the afternoon, so we went to this town, this small village, and this little boy comes running up to me, four years old. His name was Deke Man George. Cool name, right? Deke Man George, right? And he had his best shirt on, a blue collar shirt like mine, but he looked straight at me like he wanted something. And I picked him up because he was cute, and the, you know, the, the people that were there, the community uh, developer said, you should put him down because he wants something special. Well, you know, I don't know any better. So I pick him up and looking at this cute little boy in my arm, he rips open his shirt and there's a big tumor the size of a hero sandwich. You know, like a half a football or half a subway sandwich. Six, six inch kind of thing. Found out that Dick Man George, he wanted me to help him with this. He just pointed and looked at me with that searing look. I know what to do, but it bothered me that night. And so, and then, and then the relief worker says, you can't really do much for him. But I found out his mother had six kids, already had lost three, and he would be the fourth. And dad was um, kind of an alcoholic, so he came and went. And I saw the hut and the little farm where she grows something, and it looked so dry. How can you grow anything there? Uh, and that's how they lived. So next day, I, I did something I wasn't supposed to do. I commandeered the, the van, and we went over 16 kilometers through rough terrain in a Ford Toyota Land Cruiser, you know, one of those African Land Cruisers, very bumpy, to the hospital. And halfway to the hospital is a big tree where somebody was selling two big coolers of stuff. And in that cooler was Fanta sodas. Fanta, Fanta, don't you want to? You guys remember that commercial? And then cookies and crackers. And so I bought him some stuff. And he took a sip of the drink. And I remember looking in his eyes and thinking, oh, I've seen that before. Because years ago, when I was a little boy, growing up in Korea and very hungry, my dad brought home a U.S. Army surplus peanut butter. You know, it's the U.S. Army surplus. It's not Jiffy or Skippy. It's nothing like that, right? But it was so good. I've never, I've never tasted anything so creamy, smooth, delightful, just, just like a slice of little boy's heaven. And before I'd go to sleep that night, my stomach would growl because it was, I was growing and I was hungry, and I'd be dreaming about that peanut butter as I drifted off. And I would often dream about peanut butter the next two years. And I thought, Deekman George, you're tasting something for the first time the way that I've tasted. And I want you to have the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. And when we work with the least lost last little and the lonely, we work with people that need to have a taste of Jesus. And you can do that by investing in the kingdom of God, where you will be repaid, not on earth, but 
it will be repaid to you, the Bible says, in heaven. And God loves this church. And God wants to use you to reach those who are the least, last, lost little, and the, those who are lonely. And so will you love? Will you serve? And will you send? And will you be sent? This morning we're gathered around the communion table, the Lord's table. And when you see what Jesus has done and the greatest investment that God has made, and up till the time that Jesus came into the garden, God's presence was always with them. But in order for him to be the great sacrifice for all of our sins, he had to remove his presence. God had to remove his presence from Jesus. Jesus had never felt that before. That was a great agony, a great, you know, he cried out where there was blood. Sweats of blood. Because he was abandoned totally by God so that the sins of the world, sins, our sins could be put on him. That was the greatest investment he made to bring you and I who were lost to him. So I want to ask you today, what are you investing in? Are you investing in the little, the least, last, lost, those who are lonely, those who need Christ? Will you do that? Will you use your, all of your ability, your treasure, your time, your talent, and your testimony for the Lord?